Welcome to the Juggling Without Balls podcast. My name is Monica Parkin and I am your host. And every week on the show, I'm going to be talking to powerful, successful women who juggle it all. And when I say juggle it all, I mean everything, kids, health, aging parents, careers, relationships, you name it, we're going to talk about it. So stick around, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a seat and enjoy the show. Hello, jugglers, and welcome to another episode. I'm really excited to introduce my guest today, Amy Granicky. Amy is someone I know really well. Uh, she used to be a veterinary technician, went back to school later in life to become a certified canine rehab practitioner. So we're here to talk about what that is, uh, about her journey to get there, and also some of the things that you can do as a pet owner to keep your pets healthier and happier and help them to have better mobility, lower risk of injuries, and some of the ways you can get help for them if they do have injuries and what that process looks like. Okay, welcome, Amy, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This is exciting. Yeah, so just looking at your job title, and I probably already screwed it up again, but Certified Canine Rehab Practitioner, I believe is correct. That's my title. Yeah, and so for a lot of people know, one of my side jobs is in a veterinary hospital in another field within you know the veterinary industry. And I met you there. Initially, you were a technician, and then somewhere along the way, you went back to school and got some extra education and went into sort of this area can you like was there some defining moment that made you want to do that or like what kind of led you away from specifically being a vet tech and into this kind of really specific area of of working with pets and owners i was really fortunate enough when i graduated as a tech to work at the university of guelph their veterinary teaching hospital and when i was there i worked in the small animal wards and the small animal surgery so i actually got to see all these crazy orthopedic surgeons performing these amazing surgeries on these animals. And then they, some of them would go to ICU and then some would come to me in the wards. So a lot of the orthopedic surgeries, I would have to do some icing and range of motion and helping them stand. And it was just such an incredible experience to be able to do small little things to improve these animals' lives. And then as I moved on in my life, I moved out to Edmonton and I was really fortunate enough that the practice I worked at did so many orthopedic surgeries that I was able to actually scrub in with them, but they didn't really have anybody doing any rehab like 15 years ago there, so even more than that. And so I started reading as many books as I could get and they had a new practice opened up in Edmonton that had a rehab and they did wet labs. So I was able to go and get my hands wet doing rehab. And I just realized I love it. And then I had my first son and we moved to the island. And when I came out to Van Isle Veterinary Hospital, they were doing cruciate surgeries. And I just walked right in and was super excited. And I knew how to do all these things. And Bruce really helped me build the practice and doing the rehab management with the orthopedics that they were doing there. So it was kind of, yeah, something that I just, I've always loved movement and, and helping animals move better. Very cool. I did not know that about you. Like I didn't, you just appeared one day in the aisle. I had no idea your past history. So it sounds like this little seed was planted and it got to just continue to grow and be nurtured. Yeah. Um, just for listeners who don't understand some of the terminology, do you want to explain what a wet lab is? Because it kind of sounds like you're jumping in the pool and I know that's not what it is. 
Well, no, it's just going and having kind of like a seminar, but the seminar was actually, my hands were on animals with people that were trained with rehab. So they were able to help me refine my skills. And if I felt something that I was, I asked a million questions. I was like, what is this? Why is it doing that? And so they were able to help shape my hands and my understanding of what I was feeling and how I can improve it. And I was able to move that forward into my actual practice. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So it's that opportunity to actually kind of get hands-on, like not just listen to a lecture, but you're actually getting some hands-on time with an instructor and, and with the animals. So that's super cool. Where did you, so, so you, you got to Van Al, you realized that you were helping out with all these surgeries and you had an interest in it. And the, the owner at the time nurtured that interest. So what did the next steps in that sort of educational path look like for you to, A, first of all, I guess you had to make the decision that you wanted to to do this and and I guess what was part of that decision making and then like what were the educational pieces for you to because I feel like you went to University of Tennessee or something. Yeah, I I started once I realized that the practice I wanted to work at did orthopedics. I learned what facilities institutions offered me as a technician the certification I needed to be able to grow a rehab practice. So the University of Tennessee was the one that offered the best course for me as a technician, not having a doctor with me that's also certified in rehab. So it gave me the doctor skills without being able to diagnose because I'm not a doctor, but it gave me the skills once I had the differential diagnosis, how to work up the patient, what I do to improve how they move. So once I realized that it was the University of Tennessee, then I started the whole process process of how do I do this? How do I afford this? How do I get myself? Because I had to go to Tennessee twice. One was for two weeks and the other was just for four days to go and actually do my exam and present it in front of the board and and actually have my written, my hands-on exam and then my presentation. And I had to pass all of those to get my certification. Yeah. And you were still, if I understand correctly, if I remember correctly, working as a vet tech and you had two little, little kids and a husband who works full time as a professional too. So like that had to have taken some adjustment both as a family and at work and, and like all those pieces had to come together for you. Yeah, it was a lot of juggling. I'm not going to lie about that. (laughs) I was fortunate to only work part-time. So that was one nice thing, but my oldest was just still in daycare. My youngest was just moved to daycare and I was, yeah, just driving to work and then coming home and I would put the kids to bed and then I would spend another couple hours for, oh, it was several months of just going through all my labs. And then when I had to fly to Tennessee, that was a big one because my youngest was only I think he was just two. And so me being away for two weeks from a baby was like torture. But yeah, yeah, it was it was an experience of a lifetime. And I'm so grateful that I did it because it also shows my kids that if you dream something big, you got to work through the things that are around. And I'm just really fortunate to have a very good network around me that supported me to be able to to move on with this career. Yeah. And that's the thing your kids are always watching, right? So oh, yeah. um, actually demonstrating and teaching to them what's possible and, and what, you know, what also what healthy boundaries look like and, and what chasing your passions looks like. And you're actually teaching them a lot of things just by, by modeling, you know, making those choices. But so let's talk about your actual work, but before that process happens, so we were talking about this before, and then I kind of stopped the recording and went backwards, but it, so and you just mentioned it here that you don't actually diagnose animals because you're not a veterinarian. So 
what is the process before a pet comes to you? Like they go to their veterinarian, they say, you know, my dog has some lameness or we're competing and we want to be stronger or they just had a surgery. Like what is the process that gets the animal to you? So the owners of the patients go to their veterinarian and if there is a lameness exam or something's wrong with them, doctors usually end up like prescribing medications if they need it, if they need x-rays to start to localize where the issues are. Some of the patients I'm lucky enough to work hands-on with the doctors where they'll sedate them and then I do all the x-rays and all my joint measurements and everything like that while they're sedated. And then we formulate a plan together. So everything I do with the doctor, we work together as a team. So if the doctors are not sure also about the the, the lameness, because a lot of things when they're soft tissue, there's certain maneuvers that you do to localize and narrow down what type of issue and that's where the rehab course helps more with helping to understand what these abnormalities are so I feel with our doctors they get a little bit more when I help them with that because we're able to put two heads together and then we bounce things off and we narrow the issues and then once they're we're both confident with what the diagnosis is then they pass it over to me and then I formulate the plan. But if we both are not sure, we generally send them out to specialists. So there are people who are actually board certified rehab practitioners. And I totally take advantage of this because their skills are so much more advanced than what my skills are. And I value the information that the specialist sends me. And then it allows us both to work together because usually those people are farther away. So it allows us to build a relationship, work on our patients from a distance. And then if I have any issues, they now trust me to be, to keep them in the loop if something's off. And then I know when I need to send them back to get reassessed because some things don't always move as smoothly as we want. Same as human medicine, it may work well one way, but then there may be a setback. And sometimes those setbacks are beyond a normal practitioner's care and they need to go back to a specialist. So I think working together as a team with the whole veterinary field is a really important thing. Yeah. And it sounds like a really multi-pronged, like collaborative approach, right? So first you and the doctor are, are going to like, is this a one-off? Is it an injury? Is it, is it an abnormality? Like, what is it? Yeah. Can we figure it out? And if we can't, we're going to, we're going to basically call someone else in. Right. And then, yeah. and then the, the nice thing is, I guess that they get to go see that specialist far away, but then that specialist can then give you information about how they want you to treat it and you can keep them updated and you have this beautiful loop where everyone's looped into the process. Yeah, I find that's actually really important when I have some pretty complex orthopedic issues coming from the mainland. They're, they live here, but their specialists are on the mainland, and I'm constantly keeping the surgeons, the specialists all involved because they want success with their patients just as much as I want success at home. So it's really important that we all work together because we have the common goal of improving the animal's mobility. Yeah, and it just it just reminds me, you know, often people think that veterinary medicine or working with animals is all about animals, but you know, it is a lot about relationships and being able to build relationships and have good communication, being able to have those skills actually helps you treat the animals better. Yeah, and I think it also one nice thing that I do is I also take a bit of the veterinarian's plate because they are doing so much and then orthopedics are not necessarily everybody's specialty. So if I'm able to take that burden off of them, they're able to practice better medicine and I'm able to follow through with surgeons and make sure continuity of care is there because 
the doctors don't necessarily have the time to do that. So I find that that's one thing that the doctors are very grateful that I'm able to help bridge all those gaps and make sure nobody falls through the wayside is, is my goal. Yeah, because they don't have time in a 20, 30 minute exam, whatever, to, to actually dig into all that stuff. But to be able to collaborate with you, get a diagnosis and then have you continue that and keep them in the loop has got to be just a huge burden off their plate. And for them to not need to have that super deep knowledge, knowing that you you have other resources you can call on and that the two of you can, like you say, put your head together. That's amazing. Is there like a common, I don't know, like what do you see a lot of in your practice? Like if you're a, like for pet owners, is it cruciate injuries? Is it like arthritis, hip dysplasia? Like what is the thing that you see a lot that's maybe preventable? Like someone's listening and they're like, oh, if I could get ahead of this and not have it happen, what would like one one or two of those things be? I find definitely cruciates are, it's awful to say, but are my bread and butter. And it's an unfortunate thing mm-hmm. that a lot of people are dealing with. And I would say hip dysplasia is another one. Yeah. That's another orthopedic issue I, I deal a lot with. And I would actually say front and lameness is the other one. So like, like a tendonitis. Elbows, okay. elbows, but more tendonitis, like inflammation of tendons is another. Um, I would say those are my top three right now that I have on the go. But for cruciates and hip dysplasia, those are... They are preventable to a point, but a lot of it does have to do with your genetic disposition and your nutritional status. So animals being fed improperly when they were little can actually have a very big effect on how their bones heal or grow and how they mature. And if they're poor nutrition, and then they are allowed to get obese, that puts them at a very, very high risk of having serious orthopedic issues that will make them lame in life. I found a lot of people have gone from carpet to linoleum. This Mm. is probably one of the biggest issues I find owners have because nobody really wants carpet because of bugs and it's just hard to keep clean. Dogs are slipping and there's nobody wants to have a lot of carpets or carpet runners through their house. And I find I have a significant increase in lameness due to the flooring of people's choice and having carpet runners at the top and bottom of stairs or areas where dogs turn and slip out, or if they're carpet or or if they're couch and bed dogs, having carpets where they can jump on and jump off so they're not slipping because those slipping, all it takes is repetitive up and downs and repetitive slips that the body can handle it only so many times before it blows out that ligament or tears that muscle. And I find that's one of the big things owners can really keep an eye on and help. But obesity is probably a, I would say at least 70 to 80% of the patients I see need to lose weight. Wow. Wow. It's shocking. One pound of extra weight is four pounds extra force on a joint. So your dog is overweight and it jumps up into the car and jumps out of the car or jumps on the bed and jumps off the bed repetitively that, and, and then it slips you put all of those combining factors together and you have a lameness that's just brewing and waiting to happen. Yeah, totally. That makes that makes perfect sense. And sometimes you see those, I don't know, those obese dogs who are like, oh my gosh, they're so cute. But there's actually some some not just health implications, but like actual injury and structure structural 
joint implications that I hadn't thought about. Another thing, just for owners, for people that aren't aware of what cruciate is, that's, do you want to explain what that is? But that what sort of muscle group, like it's almost like over the knee, right? Like cruciate is kind of, it's very similar to an ACL tear with humans. So it's when the cranial cruciate ligament or one of the knee ligaments that provides stability ruptures, and then the joint itself is no longer stable. And so every time the dog puts weight on it, the bone shifts around and it causes discomfort. And one thing that can happen is the more movement or improper movement into that knee, it can add damage to your meniscus, which are the little jelly discs in our knees. You hear of people getting meniscal issues. It's the very same type of thing with dogs, but the hard part when the meniscus is involved, that's only surgery fix that. No amount of conservative management or anything I can do can actually fix that. You have to actually go in and remove it. Right. Yeah. And it's, if I understand correctly, it's quite an expensive surgery. I know a lot of of people that have had it done. And then does there also further rehab kind of needed after that surgery to kind of, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There is quite a bit of rehab and it's not necessarily an everyday. My goal when people come to see me is to teach them how to do as much as they possibly can because I'm only a small window in the dog's life. So if an owner has the skills and the knowledge and the understanding of what they're trying to achieve, the outcome is better. They need less care. But for those that are not able to do all the specific things at certain healing timeframes, then they have someone like me to help them through. Yeah. Here's a, here's a common question I get from sort of new puppy owners. They want to know about like, can my puppy go up and down the stairs? How much can I run it? Like, am I causing damage if I if we just drive to the park and then they go straight on a full out run do they need to warm up are those stairs a bad thing or like what's the deal with that yes their free access to stairs as puppies is not ideal and so I see a lot of people that have very little control of their dogs when they're going up and down stairs and they end up blasting up and down and that as a puppy their growth plates are wide open and I think it's important for anybody that has a dog or gets a puppy to Google growth plates of dogs at like, even when they pick them up, what their x-rays look like at four, at four months old, it is quite unnerving to see that there is very little stability in those bones and those ligaments. And if these puppies are allowed to blast up and down stairs, they're starting, the bones are solidifying, but if they're abnormally using them, they start to to set in the wrong place. And then if they're setting in the wrong place and then as they grow and they harden completely, if they're not in proper biomechanical movement, then that's going to lead to an issue later on in life. And it's pretty important to teach the dog's manners. And sometimes dogs going up their stairs, how they go up is actually an early indicator for a lameness. Hip, hip dysplasia is one of them. If they zigzag up the stairs or they kind of go crooked up the stairs, that's because a joint can't move in its normal articular fashion and they're moving their body in a way where it doesn't hurt, but that movement is improper. And I have two dogs that have total hip replacement and their owner knew something was wrong because the dog went up the stairs crooked. Interesting. I hadn't yeah. thought about that. But you know, when I think about people in my life, I know that there are humans that have hip issues. When they walk, they often walk side to side. They do that rocking yep. motion and probably the same thing. They haven't got that nice range of movements, so they're compensating. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, interesting. So those are all things to watch for. And what about like the amount of exercise for a young puppy, you know, when those bones are developing or growing? Is there any rule of thumb about that or? I, that one's kind of up in the air. So yeah. I think a lot of the things that owners really need to watch out for is fatigue. Fatigue yeah. is the most important indicator for an owner. Puppies and that they should play a little bit because they're learning how to use their body, but allowing them to excessively play is where you'll get your injuries. And so having your car come out or your dog come out of the car and just run is probably the absolute worst thing you can possibly do for your dog because it's tendons, it's ligaments and muscles, everything are cold. And so there's very little flexibility and pliability to the tissues. And all it takes is one quick turn when they're cold and boom, there goes your knee or boom, there goes a muscle. And then you have a dog that's screaming out in pain. And I have several owners that have come to me and they're like, we just let him out of the car and he just ran and then screamed and came back three-legged. And I was like, well, did you walk them on leash for a few minutes? They're like, yeah. no, we just opened up the car and off he, off he jumped out of the car and then took off. And I'm like, okay, so there's a few things we can do. And so I tell a lot, especially my athletes, like warm up is your most important thing. You have to prepare the body for the things that you want to do. So having them walk for a few minutes on leash and then sit to stand, down to stand, a little back up. And then I'm trying to get everybody to teach their dogs how to bow, like kind of like a downward dog because yeah. That stretches their whole back muscles, their shoulder muscles, and most of the time they'll stretch out their hips after. So you've moved all the joints in their own range of motion. The dog has, not the human. And then they've done their own stretching. So they've moved their tissues to their end range that they're comfortable with. But it allows the owner to also watch, like when they're stretching, are they stretching evenly? Are they leaning one side? Do they only stretch one hip better than the other? And if you see those things, then that allows you to be like, oops, maybe today's not your off-leash day. You're going to just walk with me. So you're setting your animal up for success and having those few moments. And it's, yes, sometimes it's a pain in the butt and you just want to get your dog off and go, but warming things up will save them in the long run. Yeah, totally. Right. I remember actually reading a study years ago on like OFA, which is Orthopedic Foundation for Animals, where they took these two sets of dogs that kind of had the same parents, the same genetics and one set was sedentary all day, like their owners worked, they were sedentary all day. At the end of the day, they just go out and go for a run. And the other set of dogs had a stay at home owner where they, you know, they were out moving around all day long, or they're a farm dog and they were constantly doing slow, gentle movement. And when they looked at them 10 years later, it was the dogs that were sedentary all day and then did these sudden bursts of exercise that had more joint changes than the dogs yeah. that were moving all day. Yeah. I call them the weekend warriors. Yes, yes. They get off the couch after sitting there all week, and they're like, let's go hike a mountain. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> and right? It's so bad. Well, they're yeah. a dog. They should be able to do it. But I think people forget that we've domesticated them. We've changed how the dog is, and we have to be mindful that if we're making them do certain things, it moves them from just a normal dog to an athletic dog, and there no athlete that's like a professional will sit on the couch all day and then get up and do their sport. So we have to kind of treat our dogs a little bit more 
in a mind frame of warm them up, cool them down, like learn how to massage and stretch, but learn from a trained professional who can teach you because it's pretty shocking what Dr. Google and YouTube will teach you out there. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. So take that time. So are there, so speaking of like athletic dogs that actually don't have any injuries, but they're fly ball or they're field trialers or they're agility dogs or whatever. Do those owners ever like proactively reach out to you and say, Hey, can you set me up on a program so that my dog can be as healthy as possible as an athlete before I get an injury? Yep. I have several that are now that people are knowing who I am and what I'm doing are reaching out for that preventative care. And those people really make me happy because I don't want to see their patient or their dog as a a lame dog. I want to see them as young and fit so I can keep them fit for life. And so when I have those, I have a couple field trialing obedience tracking dogs that are in for just conditioning And it's exciting because it empowers the owner to learn something other than their normal sport. They feel incredibly proud of the dog that they have because they're learning how to watch for early signs of fatigue, learning how to monitor certain postural movements if it means something's going on. And when they know something's going on, I've given them the tools to start to improve it. And then they know their line where if it does this, you need to come see me. (laughs) So that's the nice thing where I work with those clients and then I build them sports specific programs. So things that are tailored directly to their dog, not just like an online course that people are doing for conditioning. It's tailored to your pet. Yeah, so if you know that dog is going to have to be doing tight turns or going over jumps or whatever, you can kind of work on those muscle groups so that they're more supported when they actually get into a competition where they're going hard. Correct. Yeah, yeah. and it's like the body awareness, especially for agility. It's such a, it's an amazing sport, but it creates a lot of lameness and a lot of pain or discomfort for dogs. So teaching owners how to make the dogs aware of their body slowly on these on unstable equipment and things like that. And then as they get more aware of their body, then we increase the challenge while we slowly increase speed because agility, it's all about get through the course as fast as they can without knocking a bar or having a fault. But a lot of dogs do it with very little self-preservation and teaching the dogs how to use their body, but to understand proprioceptively. So understanding where their dogs are, their legs are in space helps to prevent those issues. And it's pretty exciting when I have clients that come in for it and they're like, we had a clean run. He didn't knock a single thing Um, over. He like has a better turn and I didn't see him pop out at the weaves, like, and just giving them the skills to, to work on it at home. Cause it's all home care. Those people are training and working hard. So I just give them things that they can do at home. Yeah. And that's my next question is about that home care. You know, I I know whether it's talking to physicians or physiotherapists or whatever, a lot of it, like they can only do so much in the office and then it's what you do at home that ultimately kind of determines success. So like, do you get into situations where you can like the owners just not doing the stuff they need to be doing at home or, or where really the bulk of the work is like the homework that you give them, like where there's just a lack of compliance and, and, you know, again, that's a relationship navigation, but do you sometimes come across that? Yeah, I think I've only had a few people because rehab's pretty 
specific and yeah. you have a special owner that comes to rehab because it's yeah. not everybody can afford it. Not everybody can do it. So I find that people who generally come to me want to, but there have been the few where I'm pretty honest to people. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, so what are you wanting to achieve? Because you're not doing your homework. We're not making it any forward. And I don't know how to help you because your dog would need to see me two to three times a week. You can't afford that yet. You're not willing to put the homework in. So I'm not quite sure if we're the right fit. And I have, I don't have a lot of time for people that don't want to do those things. So I'm pretty honest because I don't want to waste people's money and I don't want to have unrealistic expectations. So I just make it as easy as I can. And then it falls back on them. And I usually, after I have that very frank discussion, probably don't see them again until the dog's super sore again. And then they're like, yeah, we really need to try to work on this. I'm like, okay, we're going to try. And sometimes they'll follow through when they realize that their dog does need it. But yeah, there's, there's very few people that I've not necessarily fired, but just said, we're, I can't help you. (laughs) Yeah. But I guess like you say, it is the nature of your clientele that they're actively seeking care for their dog. They're probably committed to doing the work. So what about someone that like, same thing, they're just an athlete or they just want to get some preventative exercises. They don't actually have an injury. Do they still need to go through a veterinarian and get a referral? Or in that case, if they're not needing a diagnosis or an injury, can they book directly with a canine rehab person or how does that work? That's kind of like we're we're towing that line right now. So if they have yeah. a good working relationship with the veterinarian that I, with the vet hospital, yeah. then those ones, I usually just go and talk to the doctor and being like, hey, these people are trying to get into the sport. Are you okay if I at least get it started? If I find anything on my initial exam, then my next appointment, I bring the doctor in. And so I have some dogs where there are some patients that the own, the doctors are like, yep, not a problem. Just you do what you do and then tell me if you find anything. And then we coordinate the second appointment with them. Or if I do the first one, I'm like, I don't like the feel of this. I think you need to do an x-ray workup. Then a lot of people end up actually trusting that yeah. And then we work together with the doctor. So the next appointments, the sedation workup with the doctor, we go through it while they're sedated. I do all my joint measurements and muscle mass and muscle testing and specific things that I do with them. And we work it up together. And then we figure out once again, the plan, how we go through them. And then I take them back on again. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So that's good to know. I wanted to ask about like treatment things like I know you use a laser, sometimes you use massage. Do you do ultrasound or TENS or what kind of treatments do you, are you able to offer, you know, beyond exercises and, and you know what I mean? Yep. I use my, I have a class four therapeutic laser. So I use that quite a bit with tendonitis, muscles, discomfort. My old geriatric dogs, I tend to use it quite a bit just to help remove the the discomfort, get blood flowing to the area to make them feel a little bit more comfortable. A lot of tissue work. I really, really, really like to make sure muscles are soft and flexible before I really build a strengthening program. A muscle that's really tight and imbalanced will not be accepting to proper strengthening and you won't have a balanced dog. If it, the muscle doesn't work accordingly, it will not 
set that really nice strengthening program. So if I work with the owners, I really teach people at home how you, your pets with an agenda is essentially what I call it. So when they're petting their dog, they have certain specific movements to help reduce muscle tightness, get blood flowing to the area, teaching them how to stretch them. And then once we get a bit more flexibility, then we really focus on strengthening programs. And so a lot of therapeutic exercises, meaning certain movements put on muscles in certain groups. So if I give them their exercise program, it helps to build all that muscle. I have a TENS, but I find I don't use it very much because you have to shave. And most people don't want a patchwork quilt dog with all these squares all over them to attach it. I don't have a therapeutic laser and a lot of the rehab professionals that I've contact that I constantly am in contact with, they barely use it because there's other modalities now that really work. There is certain certain issues that you can use them with, but I find myself I have good success with my laser. Shockwave is something that would be incredible to get. So that's one thing that's been on my radar. And that is phenomenal for osteoarthritic pain, like in your elbows and your hips and even back pain and stuff. So quite a few things that the shockwave can be done with, especially shoulder tendonitis. It's incredible for breaking down that inflammation in the shoulder ligaments. So last question, because we're getting, we're starting to wrap up here close to the hour, but I know it's, it's a really rewarding job. Obviously I can just hear the passion in your voice. (laughs) And obviously I think like the, if I asked you what the plus is, it's seeing those healthy dogs at the other end and building those relationships with owners. It's pretty demanding of your time though. It's, you've got a really busy practice. What do you do like outside of work or, or how do you, or even inside of work, like what's the thing that you either give to someone else to do or the boundary that you set, or what is the thing that you do to kind of care for yourself in the process of, of you know, being really busy in your profession? I try to get out in nature as much as I can. I'm, I love to hike and it's one of those things that the second I hit a forest, I just feel all the tension of the body run away. I'm always out with my dog in the forest. It doesn't feel right to be out there without him. So we get in there every single day that I possibly can. And I love getting getting him to, to do all the fun things out in the forest with me. I love mountain biking and gardening. If I'm not in the forest on my mountain bike, you will find me in my garden. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. That's amazing. So thank you very much for coming today. Did you have any little last words you want to share with us or anything you want to add before we wrap? I just think it's important to watch your pets. If you're starting to notice them leaning in an odd direction or just paying really close attention to early signs of fatigue, you can really save your pet a lot of discomfort figuring out these things early and being proactive in your care. Don't weekend warrior. It breaks dogs. Like don't let them jump in and out of trucks and off tailgates. That's just little things that you can do. Keep them lean. It's a, it's a big problem right now, obese pets. So that's one thing that will save your pocketbook and save your pet in the long run is don't overfeed them. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess if someone needs some help with that and they're, they're challenged by that, they could probably speak to their veterinarian or, you know, a technician that yep. specializes in nutrition and, and get some advice in that area. Definitely. 
Yeah. So just to recap, it sounds like, you know, let your pets warm up. Don't don't do that sedentary all day and then fly straight out of the car thing. Throw rugs, things for traction, keeping their weight down and just watching, like being aware of, you know, something's just not quite right today or this isn't quite right. Those are things to just be tuned in and pay attention to. Yeah. Even take pictures and videos. It's shocking how if you go back and you look at a picture, even a couple weeks, it's pretty incredible the difference that you can see, or even just videos. If you think they're moving funny, take a video of it. And then if they keep doing it or it changes, take another video and then you can send it to your veterinarians and being like, I think something's up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's a really useful tool. Some technology things are good and that is one. <laughs> yeah. Cause then they can actually see the difference. Amazing. Great idea. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us, Amy. And oh, thanks for this opportunity. Always. Yeah. It's been awesome. And that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us on the show. Just wanted to let you all know that I have a book out this year. It's called Overcoming Awkward, The Introvert's Guide to Networking, Marketing, and Sales. You can find it on Amazon, paperback, Kindle, and on Audible as an audiobook version. See you all soon. Have a great week, jugglers.